Welcome to the Nonprofit Growth Show, presented by Nonprofit Megaphone, the podcast where we highlight nonprofit leaders in the trenches who share the strategies and tactics they use to grow their organizations and make a difference each day. As we like to say, if you want to be discouraged by a general sense of decay, read the news. But if you want to be inspired by concrete stories of growth, talk to a nonprofit. Here's to the modern day superheroes, the nonprofit leaders. Let's dive in. Good morning, everyone, or evening, depending on where you are. I'm here with Ashley Fay. She's the Director of Development at Refugee Services of Texas. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I am uh, thrilled to dive into some of the experiences you've had. And as is our tradition here, to begin, let's jump right into a climactic or dramatic or exciting moment that you've had as part of your life as a development professional. I'd love to hear what was going on and how it worked out. Sure. Um, so I think one of the most poignant moments in my career was actually towards the beginning. And um, I'm definitely not going to be all doom and gloom, but unfortunately it was a really hard moment, um, but it influenced me in a very positive way. So I started my career actually working with refugees and human trafficking survivors and became really interested in the international aspect of that and the experiences of our clients overseas. And so um, I had done some travel, but decided to go to India and I worked there in the red light districts um, just for a, a little bit. And I was there uh, two times. And uh, the first time I went, I worked in the group homes um, where some of the kids stayed who were living in the brothels. And so the um, their experiences were extremely harsh, to say the least. Um, their mothers were there working not by choice in the brothels. And um, it, it, there, it's just widely overlooked. And um, while it's not legal human trafficking, it just happens and it's very um, in your face. And so that's the situation that these kids were living in and they would come to this day center after school so that they had a safe place to be while their moms were working. And so I got to experience that and um, it will always stay with me that at the end of the day, we went back to our hotels and these kids went back to the brothels and um, I felt a personal sense of responsibility. And that has really shaped um, my my career and um, given me this passion and fuel to continue working for disenfranchised populations. Absolutely. That is a um, that is a remarkable experience that I'm sure is, yeah, as you shared, completely life-altering. And then tell us about the journey from there. Tell us about um, sort of how you got to where you are today. And um, then we'll dive into some of the work the organization's doing right now. Sure. So I was very interested in um, originally the direct service aspect of this type of work in general. And um, I think I was looking for something that, again, had that international aspect. And I had done enough travel to know that the situations in other countries and the, the levels of poverty in other countries are something that we don't find here in the United States. And, and while we have poverty, and I definitely don't want to um, diminish that in any way, um, to see the conditions that people are living in in developing countries, um, again, really, really influenced me. And so 
um, I started working with refugees and trafficking survivors and, and learning about that. I went on to work with individuals doing case management and things of that nature um, who were in the criminal justice systems and mental health systems Um kids, girls who had been trafficked, um, who were gang involved, things of that nature. And um, then I I worked with adults who had gotten out of prison and um, were just in a really hard space and some homeless individuals and trying to find safe housing and, and things like that. Um, and I did that for nine years. I, I supervised a group home for pregnant parenting teens during that time. So I was in that space for quite a while. Um, and I, I cared so much about our clients and, and I loved it um, in a way, but it just didn't feel like what I was supposed to be doing. And so I went back to school. I got a master's in social justice and human rights with an emphasis in nonprofit management. And that helped me so much clarify the kind of work that I wanted to do. I definitely didn't want to go to school just to get another degree. I didn't think that I would go back to school. Um, and I, I went back several years after I graduated from undergrad because I found out about this new program and it helped me immensely. It was at Arizona State University. And so from there, I started working at um, an organization in, in Arizona called Esperanza. And it's a a global health NGO, and they do things like free surgeries, they rebuild homes, um, and they work in different countries throughout South America and Africa. So I did that work for a little bit and I loved it. And then uh, we moved to Texas two years ago for my husband's job. I was really sad to leave this job that I loved, um, but it worked out so well because then I found Refugee Services of Texas and I found uh, that I had come full circle and I was here exactly where I meant to be. So during that time, I moved from direct service into development and um, really found that that's where my skill set lies. And I absolutely love it. I don't feel like I work. I feel like I just do what I'm passionate about and I get paid for it. And it's amazing. Such a cool opportunity. Yeah. Is there a story that you could share with us that crystallizes for you the impact that Refugee Services of Texas is making, maybe through the eyes of a single person or a single family? Well, recently, part of what we do at Refugee Services of Texas, and we provide a whole array of services, um, but the first thing that we do is pick refugees up at the airport. So we find out um, through the federal government, they get filtered down and uh, appointed to Refugee Services of Texas to be their resettlement agency. And so we go and actually pick them up at the airport. We set up their apartments and um, make sure that there's food in the refrigerator. And uh, when we pick them up, that's really a transformative experience. And I always advocate to volunteers and individuals who are interested to go and, and be part of that experience um, because they come from, of course, these war-torn areas. They're fleeing persecution. Um, often they have been through torture and some of the worst things that humanity can face. And then they flee to a refugee camp where they live for, it could be 15 years. So we have whole generations being raised in refugee camps. And then finally, after this, God knows how long, 48-hour plane ride, um, they arrive here 
and it's a brand new beginning and it's not easy by any means, but it's amazing to know that you get to be a small part of that experience. And I've done those pickups in Dallas and in Houston. And it's just really exciting to me to know that they're seeing their new city for the first time and that they have opportunities and to take them to a nice clean apartment that volunteers set up with a lot of love and everything that they need. And, um, and they have the tools to achieve self-sufficiency with dignity. So I love being part of that experience. I recently picked up a Congolese family. I think there were 12 of them and they ranged in age from two to 92. And um, so it was just really interesting kind of reflecting on the experiences of the, the older woman who had been through so much trauma and you could see it. And um, she was suffering from post traumatic uh, stress disorder. And then to have the baby who will never know that life again and will know hard work and opportunity and then everyone in between. Um, So it's just really exciting and it's just kind of really personalizes what we do at RST. Such a cool story. That's incredible. And I really appreciate not only the story itself, but also how you shared it. I think um, the next section that we often jump into is about tactics and so forth. And um, how the work of development can go on. And I love, I love the stories and I love sort of how you put everything in context, which makes it very clear to someone, like, what is the impact that's happening here and how this is actually like transformational work that's being done for entire families. Um, so jumping off on that, are there, are there particular tactics or strategies or things that you've been, that you've found to be helpful or particularly effective in your development and fundraising work? For me, it's reminding myself that the work is really not about me. Um, it, people tell me all the time that they could never be in fundraising because they hate asking for money. Um, but when you take the ego out of this work as much as possible, it makes it very easy um, to make asks. And um, and the relationships that are formed are very genuine. So it's not just about um, you know going after that bottom line. Of course, that's important and that's what will help transform lives. Um, but to stay very mission centric and to share that with partners. So if we partner with a corporation or um, another organization or even an individual, I really want to know what makes them tick and and what gets them excited. And I want to partner with them because I'm excited too. And so um, just really taking myself out of the equation and remembering that this is it's about them and it's about the clients and their experiences and knowing that, you know, through our hard work, um, they really will be given a unique opportunity at a second chance. For an organization like yours, where do most new donors come from? Do they hear about you online? Do they come to an event that you put on? What is the typical journey of someone who's not a donor that then becomes engaged somehow and then does decide to support? I think some of it is our online presence. We um, hope to ramp that up. We're redoing our website right now. So that will be live in a couple weeks. And um, and so we do hope to attract folks through that and through social media. We um, are active on um, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and Pinterest. We actually get a lot of folks from Pinterest. Um, and 
word of mouth more and more. Um, you know, for a long time, RST did not focus so much on uh, on the fundraising, on the marketing, and that public facing aspect of the organization. Um, we are primarily federally funded. And that's something that we we want to change. And slowly we are. We're about 92% federally funded. And that's dangerous, I think, for any organization um, to have all their eggs in one basket, but especially for a refugee resettlement agency in the current political atmosphere. Um, it's, it's rough sure. <laughs> trying to rely on government funding. And um, the number of refugees has been cut to 30,000, a cap of 30,000. And then just recently, the cap starting October is 18,000. And that's a record low. And to give you some context, the average number of refugees coming into the country is 90,000. And the height was 200,000. And that was under Reagan. And so the 18,000 for the whole country is really devastating the refugee resettlement um, infrastructure um, organizations are closing, programs are closing. And so um, the bright side of all of this is that um, people are mobilized and the people that care about this and care about immigrant rights and refugee issues, they are coming to the forefront and they're actively seeking organizations like RST. And so um, they are looking online and we have a great media presence and um, doing things like this and getting the word out about about what we're doing, I think is really important. And then finally, we did start doing um, events here. Since I've been with the organization in the last year, we've uh, focused on some film screenings and that's brought in a lot of people and provided some needed education. Let's carry that thread of events into our debate, which is always fun uh, for everyone except for me because I always lose, but we'll give it a shot here. And the question that we have teed up is, should organizations, does it make more sense to do large gala style events or should they be doing smaller, more community centric events? Ashley, do you have a side of that debate that you'd like to take? I do. I think that while there is a place for galas and um, and these big events, I would advocate in this context for the smaller community centric Perfect. Okay. Why don't you go ahead and make an opening statement, if you will, on why that is the way to go. And then I'll do my best to argue against everything you say. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that um, the smaller mission-centric events um, are positive for a lot of reasons. I think one, especially with an organization such as ours, where there really is this education piece and a lot of misinformation about immigrants and refugees, that we need to bring that education to the forefront. So I would say um, the this type of event while raising money also provides education. I also think that um, these type of events um, require less time and effort and energy on the part of the whole staff when you when you do a gala and I've done these big events it is all hands on deck and as soon as one is done you start planning for the other one and that is a very primary part of your day every day um, and so if when you factor in the salaries of the people that are working on the event, are they really as profitable as as you might think? Um, so I would say financially, it makes sense to do the smaller events 
to have kind of a template and run with it and develop these community partners and make it bigger and better each year rather than doing the same type of thing every year and the same type of thing that a lot of other nonprofits do. I love it. Okay. So here's my, I'll attempt to push back. So wouldn't you say that if you are doing the same event each year and maybe it only happens once a year that you're able to, um, that you're able to get really, really good at it. You're get, able to get it down to a science and that um, since it always is fairly similar, that it's not as much of a drain on staff time, certainly still a major obligation for staff, but not as much of a drain um, as doing many events. Maybe they're all different. Maybe um, they happen somewhat unpredictably throughout the year, so it's harder to get into a routine. Doesn't making it more predictable for donors and also for staff, doesn't that outweigh the difficulties of large gala type events? I would say that I'm not sure predictability is is a benefit. And um, while there might be some events that individuals look forward to the whole year, I would say that's not the majority of, uh, of nonprofit fundraisers. Um, we also have that kind of, um, like I, I was referring to kind of a template. So we can change it up and we do different film screenings and we can focus on different issues and different aspects of immigration and even human trafficking. Our last one was on human trafficking. And so while we can make that simple change in our marketing and in the film that we're showing, we're drawing new crowds, even the same crowds, they're coming back because it's new information. It's not the same thing all over again with different decorations. Um, and, um, and so that's been been really successful to have that level of kind of unpredictability. What's RST going to do next? And where are they going to do it? We're all over Texas. We have six sites ranging from the Rio Grande Valley all the way up to uh, Amarillo. And for an organization like this, well, someday we might do a gala because there is a place for that and they can be very successful. I think our general fundraising model calls for these more separate community-centered events. The culture in these different cities is so different. Um, imagine Amarillo uh, versus Austin. We have a very conservative town versus a very liberal city. And um, they're looking for different things. They're looking for different types of events and different types of marketing that a gala just would not draw. I love it. And I'll just say, let's ding, ding, ding. We'll ring the bell and declare you the winner of that one. I completely agree. And we actually talked about this in one of our other um are one of our other interviews, one of our other episodes. And um, the guest there made the same point that you made here, which I think is overlooked, which is the hidden cost of staff time to put on a gala. It takes enormous amount of time, all hands on deck, you know, for weeks in advance oftentimes. And if you really subtracted out that soft cost, would it be as, you know, ROI positive as maybe it looks if you don't take that into account? And I love your point about personalization to the audience as well. Um, that was that was thank very you. fun. So thank you. Um, thank you. Cool. Let's jump into some more rapid fire questions. If you could describe yourself in one word, what would you say and why? Passionate. I am fueled by this dedication to public service and human rights. It's what I think about 
all the time. It's what keeps me up at night. Um, it's sort of my guiding force and, um, it, it fuels my interaction even with my kids. They come to volunteer with me. Um, my group of friends is active in this space as well. So it just really pervades, um, every aspect of my life. And it's why I feel like I'm, I'm here is to make some sort of an impact on those that I can. Is there an exciting shift that you're seeing taking place in the nonprofit world? I do think there's a sense of urgency that maybe wasn't present before. And um, I'm definitely biased because I am in the world of refugee resettlement and there definitely is this sense of urgency. But I think that whether it's refugee related or it's environmental causes, we're dealing now in 2019 with some really life or death situations. Um, And then I see a trend of organizations also joining forces rather than competing. And that's really exciting. I've seen funders focusing more on collaboration and organizations, including RST, realizing that different players bring different skill sets and resources to the table. So we'll be able to achieve more benefit to our clients by working together. So that's an exciting trend. Absolutely. I think the trend of nonprofit mergers or nonprofit collaborations or joint ventures, so to speak, is really, really exciting because it's like, hey, we don't need to reinvent the wheel each time if the resources already exist. One of the other things that we're fascinated by is the power of networks to draw people together and create these communities of practice around development and um, some of these changes that we're trying to see in the world. Are there people that have been particularly inspiring or helpful to you along your journey so far that you kind of want to give a shout out to? Yeah. So there's a a woman named Sarah Simmons, and she founded an organization that's called Releve. Um, It was rebranded from from a different name. But essentially, this is the organization that I went to India with my first time. It introduced me to India and to the red light districts and to trafficking um, really on a personal level. So she founded this organization after visiting um, Nepal and discovering the situation and and some of the resources um, that were there, the the change makers in Nepal that were doing this work and helping survivors. And she came back just completely fueled. She hadn't been in the nonprofit field. This wasn't an issue that she had gone and was really passionate about. She didn't know about it. And she went and she saw it and it it was like a switch was flipped and she it changed her whole life. And um, I got to go with her to India and it was just really transformative to see a woman and a mother who was not only working, but was really changing a community. And so that was very powerful to me. This is before I had children. I was in school, um, but I knew that was the type of thing that I wanted to aspire to. So she she was uh, amazing um, for me. And another woman I would say is, um, and you may know this name, her name is Honorata Kerala. She founded an organization called Mighty Nepal. And um, she, Sarah actually has met her, but she was one of the CNN heroes one year. So she's gotten some press and she runs um, a home in Nepal for kids who were trafficked and who have contracted AIDS and HIV. So it's more of a hospice setting where they can live out the rest of their lives with dignity. And um, I think that she is, um, she's my personal hero. 
That is so cool. I love that. And I love the sort of the uh, trails of inspiration that um, connect different members of the nonprofit community together. Is there something that you understand now that you didn't appreciate as much maybe five or 10 years ago? I think that um, I understand now that I don't have to have all the answers when I when I start typing a grant or when I go into a meeting, um, I, I don't have to know how that is going to end up. So that ambiguity is okay. And I can embrace that now. And I understand now that no one tackles every problem knowing how to solve it. There's this period of um, investigation. And so I'm comfortable with that now. And I, I, I didn't know that before. Really, really cool. Ashley, thank you so much for spending the time with us. I know that you have um, a very busy schedule and we really appreciate you sharing some of the lessons you've learned over the course of your experience. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you or if they want to learn more about Refugee Services of Texas? So I am on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also part of an expat organization called Internations. So that might be fun for some to look into. Um, and they do all kinds of community service projects. They're active now with RST. So um, I have a profile there in Internations. Um, and you can definitely contact us through the website and find me that way, rstx.org. Perfect. Thank you again, Ashley. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Growth Show presented by Nonprofit Megaphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or giving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast network. We appreciate your support. Until next time.